Let us pray. So, Father, truly you are indeed holy. And you call us to walk as a holy people, conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated. Good to see all of you here this morning. And um, again, thank you to the worship team from Epiphany and Chantilly. I still want to say Herndon all the time, but it's you're in Chantilly now, and you've been there a long time at this point. So, so good to have you all here this morning with us. I want to invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them, or grab a Bible from under your pew and turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Amos, our Old Testament reading for this morning. Don't get to preach from uh, Amos or the Minor Prophets all that often in the lectionary, and I was excited when this opportunity came up because there's so much richness in these these books. The prophet Amos is what is is known as one of the Minor Prophets. Now, to be clear, um, that's not minor in the sense of being less important, but minor versus major prophet is a distinction based on the size of the book. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, major prophets, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of those books toward the end of the Old Testament, those are minor prophets because the, the books are much shorter in length. But Amos wrote to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, probably late in the reign of King Jeroboam, most likely between about 760 and 757 B.C. Now, Amos was a country boy. He was a prophet from the country, most likely a herdsman of sheep and cattle who also made a living by cultivating wild figs. We know this because in Amos chapter 7, verses 14 through 15, we read this. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. The two main sins which God called Amos to confront among the people of Judah were abuses of power in the social realm and compromise with pagan religions. And particularly at fault for these sins were the landed wealthy members of the Judean society. These wealthy landowners and wealthier people in the society had not only seduced the poor away from true obedience and worship of the one true God, they had also oppressed those very same people economically. All of this leading to the righteous judgment of God against them. Much of what is said in this passage from Amos is difficult because it involves God's judgment of sin and disobedience, both in the physical temporal realm, judgment in physical ways on the land, and also spiritual judgment. And we'll hear about that as we we look at this. Now, last Sunday in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, we saw God's heart revealed, how God diligently pursues those who are lost calling them to turn to him and to know his transforming life and power through Jesus Christ. And we also saw how God calls you and me, God calls us as his people to join with him in this, to join with God in his mission in redeeming the world. 
Now, what we see here in Amos is God's heart of concern, not only for the spiritual state of people, which is incredibly important and is very much a theme in the book of Amos. But additionally, we see God's concern for the physical and temporal needs of people and that these needs are also close to the heart of God. And we see here especially that God's heart, that his people, the people of God, those who know him by name, we see God's heart that his people are concerned for the needs of the poor and for godly justice on their behalf. Now, one additional point of clarification I think is important as we begin looking at this text from Amos today. Amos's prophecy is specifically addressed to God's Old Testament covenant people. And while Old Testament Israel, or in this case the southern kingdom Judah, was a geographic and political entity, they were first and foremost a spiritual entity. And we can't lose sight of that as we look at prophecies from the Old Testament. So while God, yes, indeed does judge nations, the application here in our day is not so much applicable to a temporal, geographic, and political entity such as the United States or any other country as it is to the church of Jesus Christ, God's New Testament people, who are, we are a spiritual entity. And so that's important when we look at Old Testament prophecy, because sometimes people want to make a jump very quickly to the land or a nation or that sort of thing, and they're equating it with temporal political entities, when the application is most directly and significantly It was to God's old covenant people, and now the same principles apply to God's new covenant people, the church of Jesus Christ. As we look at this passage from Amos, I want to primarily focus on verses 4 through 6. Now clearly, again, disobeying God leads to judgment. Verses 7 through 12 elaborate in great detail on this reality. What I want to do this morning is to reframe things for us in a somewhat more positive light, And as an exhortation, an exhortation of what God calls you and me to as his new covenant people based on the principles of godly justice found here in these verses. And I do that because the reality is for the people of God, God's old covenant people in Amos' day, things did not have to be the way they were. Things were the way they were because they were walking in disobedience to God and to God's commands, because they were in a dark place and in rebellion against God. It didn't have to be that way. And what we see in verses 4 through 6 is an indictment against the wealthy who have failed to obey the heart and the essence of God's commands. What they were called to, and what we and God's people in every age are called to, is what I would call godliness and justice, or godliness and godly justice. And this is my overarching theme as we look at these verses this morning, a call to godliness and justice. And there are three aspects of this call, which I want to highlight from Amos this morning. The first one is this. Worship is not a substitute for just acts. Repeat that. Worship is not a substitute for just acts. Look at verses four through six. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale? 
that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy for the poor, buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. So we look at these verses, there is a twofold ungodly action here. First, they are trampling on the needy. Second, there is an impatient and hasty observance of two important feasts and religious observances of Israel. And I want to look at the second issue first, the impatient um, observation of the feast, and then we'll come back and look at the trampling of the needy. So let's look at this second ungodly action. The new moon was celebrated at the start of every month. Numbers chapter 28, verses 11 through 15 give us more insight into this. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish, also three tenths tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull and two tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be a half a hen of wine for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram and a quarter of hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and and its drink offering. Clear instructions regarding observance of the new moon. The second and more familiar observance to us is the Sabbath, which was to be observed weekly. And on the Sabbath, rest from work was mandated. And this applied to servants and outsiders, as well as those who were fully a part of the kingdom. Daniel Carroll, in his wonderful commentary on Amos, says this, charitable justice was inherent in its practice. So the idea here is that when those within the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom rested, everyone who served and worked for them, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious persuasion, was also to rest and be honored. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11 tell us, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what is at issue here? Well, first, they were going through the motions, being hasty in their worship of God and in the observances that God commanded. Outwardly, they were worshiping God, but in their hearts, there is, as Carol says in his commentary, a malicious impatience. And their focus is not on drawing near to God as much as getting things over with so that they could get back to turning a profit, so that they could get back to making money. Yikes. How awful of them, we say. But what about us in the culture we live in? 
How often are you and I at risk or how often are you and I as the people of God guilty of the same heart attitude? How often do we fall into this kind of a snare? Do we find ourselves filled with joy and excitement to come together as the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ in God's house to worship the Lord? Do we get excited about coming into the midst of the body of believers and experiencing God's presence together and receiving Holy Communion, receiving the Eucharist and encountering God? Or are we in a big hurry to do our duty to, if you will, fulfill our Sunday obligations, if it's one more check to tick off on a long list of things, get it over with, now we're okay with God and we go about our business? Do we get irritable when church goes a little longer than expected, like it's going to today? Simply because we want to get on with our day, rather than rejoicing in what God is doing and basking in God's presence? And if so, why? What's going on inside of us? What's going on in our heart of hearts? And what other things in our lives have we allowed to become so pressing that they take precedence over worshiping God? The second sin concern here is with an ungodly division or bifurcation where ritual concern, observances that God commands are separated from godly social action. In other words, they're going through the motions of worship, but their heart toward just treatment of those in society around them was being ignored at the very best, or more likely from the indicators here, they were glorying in taking advantage of the poor. Genuine worship of God and godly social concern are not an either-or. They are a both-and. They go together and they cannot be separated in the life of a person who's seeking to serve God with his or her whole heart. Because true obedience and heart fidelity to God from the posture of a living relationship, from the posture of a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ and overwhelming thankfulness for what God has done, will lead us to both genuine worship and to just acts. Genuine faith informs every part of our lives. We cannot have this bifurcation or this compartmentalization in our lives. God wants us to serve him with the entirety of our being. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone he says he has faith but does not have works. Can that save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. As God's people, we are called to strive for an end to injustice and the crushing of the needy in our culture, in the church, and especially how we as the people of God order our lives, both individually and corporately. God's word has so much to say 
practically regarding how his people are to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the hungry, the stranger and alien in our midst. Worship is not a substitute for pursuing godly justice. In fact, walking in injustice nullifies the genuineness of our worship before God. In the Old Testament prophets, there is a close correlation between a lack of mercy among the rich and the poverty of their own spirituality. And that still holds true because godly heart attitudes result in genuine worship of God, worship that then flows out into godly action. The prophet Micah, another one of the minor prophets in Micah 6.8 says this, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does, excuse me, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We are called to genuine worship of God and living justly. Worship and just acts cannot be separated. The second thing we see here is that God calls us to generous integrity. Once again, the, the wealthy people in Amos' day missed it. Look at verse 5. That we may take an ephah, make an ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. They were focusing on even delighting in tampering with the standard measures of dry goods. They were rejoicing in the, their ability to rip somebody off. That's, and priding themselves on it. That's what's going on here. And they were selling the buyer less than what was being paid for. Kind of like selling someone a gallon of something, but only giving them three quarts. Or like, as we are all familiar with in the world we live in today, overpackaging, where you buy something when you open up that's this big and you've got this big package with layers of plastic and cardboard and paper and, and on Christmas Day you have to go get tools out of the garage just to get, get a kid's toy unpacked. But it's, but it's woefully larger than what it needs to be to make you feel like you're getting more than what you're really getting. And on top of this, they made the customary weight for payment, the shekel, heavier, so the buyer paid extra for less. The buyer paid more for the less that they were getting. And on top of this, they pride themselves here on literally bending the scales to skew the weight in their favor. All to take advantage of those who were poor to begin with, those who were just trying to survive and put food on their tables. And they also delighted in ensnaring the poor in debt by selling them life necessities and setting things up in a way where it was impossible for those poor people to ever get ahead, to ever fully repay, so that they kept these people under their thumb, under their control, under their influence. And they were selling the chaff with the wheat, an egregious sin because chaff is the hull on the outside of the kernel of wheat. It's useless. It makes good fertilizer, but it's useless for, for food. It has no nutritional value. And they were mixing that in with the wheat. So they were selling people stuff they couldn't eat when people were desperately needing to eat. And they were, were in a sense, um, watering down, figuratively, the, the, the wheat with the chaff. 
and selling them something that was useless and inedible. And they kept the poor both indebted and hungry. Those of you, some of you know my, um, my paternal grandmother's family um, settled in Western Virginia, what is now West Virginia, in the 1760s. And so they were very early settlers from Europe in that area. And so I've always had an interest in Appalachian history and the history of that area. But if you know anything about Appalachian history, it's a story of cycles of repeatedly taking advantage of the people in those regions. First, it was the timber companies. Later, it was the coal companies. And they would pull people from their farms and that sort of thing and, and offer them work in the mines or working in the coal industry back in the late 19th century. And they would then build them homes in company towns that the company owned. And they were paid to a large extent in scrip rather than actual money, which was basically company money. So you had to buy your food and your life necessities at the company store there in the town. And you got inferior goods and lower quantities for higher prices. And you see this pattern repeated over and over in that region. And then when the companies got what they wanted, they extracted the, the natural resources. They'd leave and the towns would die and the people were left with nothing except a um, parched landscape and a lot of polluted streams and no way to make money. But that's the kind of thing Amos is talking about here. And those of you that are older will remember the Tennessee Ernie Ford song, 16 Tons. This is what he was singing about in those towns where he, and the refrain says, you load 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. debt. St. Peter, don't call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. So what is God saying to you and me, to us as the body of Christ? What is his call to us? Well, integrity, concern for the needs of others, especially the poor, in all of our actions, in all of our life choices, in all of our business dealings, is God's call to us. As Christians in business dealings, we should go the extra mile, even if it costs us a little bit more, in our business dealings, to make sure that we are being fair and that anyone working for us is being fully and fairly compensated. They're getting the just wage for their labors. And we need to consider this as much as we can within our knowledge in our purchasing as well. We need to consider this in investments. And I'm all for investing in retirement investments, but we need to do everything we can to make sure that the ways that we invest in the organizations that we invest with and, and ways that we buy things isn't doing this indirectly to people in the two-thirds world where, where companies and we are benefiting from it by making a profit by keeping those people under those companies' thumbs where they're being unjustly treated, where they're being taken advantage of, perhaps even enslaved and kept in poverty for the benefit of certain corporations. We are to witness through integrity and just actions which demonstrate the heart of God. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who had such a profound impact initially in England during the reign of Queen Victoria and then throughout the world. And remember, the Salvation Army is not just 
a charity or a social aid organization. The Salvation Army is a church. It is a Christian denomination, first and foremost. And sometimes people forget that, right, Wayne? (laughs) But William Booth said this. What is the use of preaching the gospel to men whose whole attention is concentrated upon a mad, desperate struggle to keep themselves alive? God calls you and me to generous integrity. And finally, the third point, justice, mercy, and true godliness are inseparable. Remember again the words of Micah 6, 8. God sees, God knows, God remembers the actions and the intention of our hearts. Do we do justice? Do we love kindness and mercy? Are we walking humbly with our God? And do we do this recognizing the grace and the mercy and the loving kindness that God has poured into our lives? Do we do this recognizing the mercy we have received, the mercy of which we are beneficiaries? And that our impoverished neighbors right here in Dale City and in the two-thirds world, they could be us apart from God's grace and mercy. There are lots, lots of incredibly hardworking, industrious people right here in our community. We meet them every month at our food giveaways who just aren't able to make ends meet. We must be stirred to what I would call holistic godliness, where we are concerned as God's heart is concerned for the salvation of souls and the caring for the physical needs of people as well. Worship of God with our whole heart that is lived out and is then unwavering in concern for godly justice. We need to align our lives, our hearts, our church, with the heart of God. The heart of God that pursues people relentlessly and calls them to a living relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And God who is deeply concerned with both their spiritual and their physical needs. So what is God calling us to, All Saints Church, as individuals, but as a church together? He's calling us to, first of all, passionately pursue him to walk in intimate fellowship with him because all of the things we talk about here today, none of it is possible without walking in intimate fellowship with God, without walking with our heart's desire to be for God and more of him in our lives and in the life of our church. And then as we do that, we share the gospel. It becomes part of who we are as a church, not just here on Sunday mornings, but all the time as we reach out to this community and through partnerships around the world for people to hear the good news of God through Jesus Christ and God inviting them into living relationship and setting them free. And God is calling us to live evermore into the reality of ministering to both the spiritual and the physical needs of people. And we are already doing that. God bless you all and thank you for what you're doing with food giveaways, with with our partnerships, with Life First, with Untrimetry, and so many other things and missionary partnerships that we have around the world. But we're to do that more. We're to live into that more. And as we do that, I believe with all my heart, God will give us the grace 
an ever greater measure to increase, increasingly move into new frontiers of ministry. God will bring those people to us and, and we will see them then become ministers and partners with us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to take the gospel to the whole person as we see people transformed and their lives set free. I like the way William Booth phrases it where he says, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step, like the legs of men walking, first faith and then works, and then faith again, and then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is one and which is the other, because they go together. And then the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let us pray. Father, we begin by thanking you for your great grace, your loving mercy, your kindness poured out in our lives and in the life of this church. Lord, we are such a blessed people, recipients of your grace and your goodness. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your faithful provision for our physical needs. And Lord, may we continue to more wholly align our hearts and our lives and the life of this church with your call that we could take the whole gospel to the whole person, ministering, Lord, to spiritual needs and physical needs, meeting people right where they are at their point of need. Lord, give us insight. Give us eyes to see the harvest field. Give us eyes, Lord, to see needs that are unmet, that, that you are more than willing and able to use us to address. And Lord, may we be faithful and may we be diligent to give you honor and glory because this is for you and for the advance of your kingdom and for the praise of your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.